Hello and welcome to the View from the Castle podcast, where we talk all things legal finance. I'm your host, Pip Murphy. The legal finance industry is interesting, diverse and forever changing. So here at The View from the Castle, we will talk all things legal finance. We hope to give you the insider's guide to legal finance and provide you with tips and tricks to accessing, obtaining and using legal finance. And we hope to shine a light on those individuals and companies operating in the legal finance industry to showcase their relevant experience and expertise. Each week, I will talk to people who have been there and done that. We will discover what is happening in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thank you for joining us today for the third Legal Finance and the View from the Castle podcast. Today we are joined by the fabulous Kim May and Lisa Brentnell, two very experienced and highly regarded members of the Castle team. I have previously introduced you to Kim and Lisa in episode one of this podcast, but in case you missed it, here are the highlights. Prior to joining Castle in 2021, Kim May was a senior litigation manager with LLS for approximately 12 years. Kim has many achievements and accomplishments, but one she is extremely and quite rightly proud to have managed was the stolen wages class action in Queensland, which concluded with a settlement in 2019 and was acknowledged as the largest human rights settlement in Australian legal history. In addition to her work with Castle, Kim also acts as company secretary for the Association of Litigation Funders of Australia. Kim lives in Sydney. She loves yoga, dogs and trivia, so I dare you to test her knowledge when you next chat to her. Kim is a hard but extremely efficient worker, a smart operator, a kind and caring person and an all-round wonderful colleague. Lisa Brentnell has over 15 years of experience in the legal finance industry, also coming across to Castle from LLS. Lisa has managed the funding of a significant number of legal proceedings and she has a genuine passion for the legal finance industry and the benefits that it can bring to plaintiffs that otherwise would not have the resources to achieve justice through the legal system. Lisa is based in Brisbane and you're most likely to find Lisa outdoors enjoying the beautiful Queensland weather. Just don't challenge Lisa to a run in the park because you're likely to come off second best as trail running is one of her keen interests. Lisa is also a very hard worker and smart operator and she has this incredible ability to build genuine and empathetic relationships with people. She is the ultimate cheerleader and supporter for her contacts, colleagues and clients. I count myself so lucky to have been able to work with both Kim and Lisa since I commenced in legal finance in 2016, and to have them as my colleagues now is just such an incredible plus. So without further ado, I would like to jump into today's podcast to talk all things legal finance, in particular the basics, the when, the how and the why. Before we get started, however, I do have a question for both of you to kick things off. My question for you both is, 
If I met one of your closest friends in the street today and I asked them to describe you to me or to tell me what you're best known for amongst your mates, what would they tell me? Pip, it's actually quite handy because Kim and I have actually known and worked together for about the last 23 years. So I have to say Kim is probably one of my closest friends. So if it's okay with you, I might actually tell you how I would describe Kim and she, if she's kind, she might say what she, how she would describe me. I think that's a fantastic way to do it. Okay. Well, oh, how long have we got? Kim, I, I really feel like I could not respect anyone more than when I respect Kim. If I had to use two words to describe her, the first one would be measured. Um, she approaches every situation with a calm head. Everything about her is calm. She very rarely gets excited about anything, but at the same token, she's completely unflappable. Um, she's the one who's devil's advocate in everything. She looks at things from the other side and she's very good at talking people off the ledge, so to speak. She's just very, very level. Um, the other word I would use to describe her is endlessly kind. Um, even, you know, with her family, with her friends and with the broader community, um, she's the kind of person who once a week she'll go to some extravagant patisserie, buy these luxurious treats for her parents just to thank them for looking after the kids from time to time. You know, she'll do anything for anyone, at, you know, her own personal sacrifice. And this is, you know, also illustrated with the stolen wages um, class action that she managed over the last few years. You know, to her that was that was her passion. She was doing it because she had a genuine belief and compassion for the claimants. So yeah, that's that's probably how I would describe Kim. Well, that's fantastic. And Kim, um, when I'm next in Sydney, you'll have to show me where this wonderful patisserie is because uh, <laughs> it is a, a treat I enjoy. We'll have to go there together. What about you, Kim? What would you say about Lisa? Oh, I, um, I feel really um, touched by that um, from Lisa so I really wasn't prepared for that but look as Lisa said we've known each other for almost I'm going to say almost 25 years because that's a quarter of a century <laughs> and when you say it like that that's a really long time um, but look yeah we've we've seen the best and worst of each other we've seen our good days and our bad days and I think it's it is hard to sum someone up in a nutshell but if I had to, I'd say Lisa is a real, she's an optimist. She's got a genuine passion really for what she does um, every day, day in and day out. Everything she does, she throws herself into. She really loves to get behind a good cause and she'll support it right through to the end, no matter how challenging it gets. Um, if any of you have watched Ted Lasso, she's the Ted Lasso in the team, which I think is a fantastic thing. Everybody needs to have a Ted Lasso on their team. That's Lisa. I think it might have something actually to do with her love of sports because she's put herself through so many trail runs, marathons, and she's even done an Ironman competition, believe it or not. She's amazing. So she's the she is the energy in our team. Um, she's also, she takes real pride in her work and she's a real team player. She really wants everyone in the team to be on the journey with her. 
And on look on the social side, she's a, a loyal friend. She's a great listener, and she's also known to play a practical joke or two in that <laughs> moment. <laughs> I've been on the receiving end of some of those. Um, they're always they're always good good jokes. So that's, that's probably Lisa in a nutshell. All right. Well, I might stay, I might stay away from uh, Queensland then if it's practical jokes coming my way. So, well, thank you both. That's fantastic introduction to each other, and really grateful for um, your comments, um, which I agree wholeheartedly with everything you've both said. Um, I've known you both for a shorter period of time, but um, but it all rings true. So I think you've given some of the listeners some fantastic insights into what makes you both tick. So if we get into the main part of this podcast, we're talking 101 legal finance. We are talking the basics. What is it? And when do you use it? How do you use it? Why do you use it? So we might kick off with the first question, really, which is, what is legal finance? So really, in a nutshell, legal finance exists where you have somebody who wants to bring legal proceedings, but they just simply can't afford to pay the legal fees and the disbursements to bring those proceedings. Enter a litigation funder who comes in and can assist by providing the funding that they need to carry on the proceedings through to potentially a contested trial. Now, it's, it is different from your typical loan as well for one reason, most funding agreements also provide for an indemnity for adverse costs, but also legal finance doesn't involve charging of interest. And also with legal finance, if the claim isn't successful, the funder does not get that funding back at the end of the day, which is very different from your typical loan. Plus, instead of charging interest, on the funding that they provide, instead the funder will charge a commission from the coverable sum from those proceedings. So they really only get their funding back and their commission if the proceedings are successful. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. I think that's a great explanation or summary of what legal finance is. In episode two of this podcast, we spoke to John and Stuart and we heard from them about the legal finance industry generally. And we learned that this is an industry that's extremely diverse and forever changing. Lots happening and have been happening over the last, you know, 10 or more years. But there's there has been a lot in the last 12 to 24 months that we've seen changing. I wondered if this was something that attracted you to a career in legal finance? So Pip, I joined the industry in 2009 and it was a very different industry back then. Um, insolvency practitioners were really the largest source of referrals and class actions, I guess, they were probably only being run by a handful of, of firms. Um, regulation of the litigation funding industry was largely non-existent and you could probably count the number of established funders on one hand really. So for me, it was it was a convergence of factors that led to me joining funding. I was in private practice at the time. I was looking for a change and the funder that Lisa was at was looking for someone. So I guess the timing was right and I jumped and it was a bit of a leap of faith on both sides, but I really haven't looked back. Um, and I guess the main things that attracted me were I could still use my legal knowledge and my skills, but I wouldn't have those day-to-day -day pressures that lawyers face in private practice 
Um, and I like the strategy aspect of managing claims. So look, it is, it's really a very diverse industry and particularly, as you said, over the last few years, it's undergone some really fundamental changes. So it's challenging, but at the same time, it really keeps you on your toes. So Kim, just following that through, could you just give a really quick summary or update on the sorts of changes that we've seen in the class action industry over the recent times? Yeah, sure. So look, you could you could talk all day about the changes, but they have, as you said, largely come about over the last few years. I think the the writing might have started appearing on the wall in around 2015 after the Productivity Commission released its its report. And they weren't actually looking, strictly speaking, into litigation funding. They were looking more broadly at access to justice, but funders were considered as part of that inquiry. And they concluded at the end that they thought some form of licensing of funders might be a good idea, but they didn't really um, delve into the detail of what that might involve. That was into late 2014, and then the report was released the following year. That you then had the, the Law Reform Commission look into litigation funding in 2018. They, on the other hand, recommended against licensing after consulting um, very broadly with the industry. And they concluded that licensing, whilst it might provide some form of regulation, it really wouldn't meet the main concern, which was capital adequacy, because licensing is just not, it's not set up to do that. So they thought that the Law Reform Commission actually recommended that um, enhancing the court's current powers to um, supervise funders and funding arrangements was a better way to, to deal with any concerns involving funders. And then I guess last year with the, the pandemic striking, we had um, some very fundamental changes being introduced by the government, including licensing and um, class actions being required to be run as managed investment schemes. We also had a parliamentary joint committee look into funding and class actions, and they released a report at the end of last year recommending a form of guaranteed minimum return to group members in class actions. And that has been taken up by the government and is currently before parliament in the form of a bill. So over the last couple of years, the amount of, of regulation introduced has been very significant, but I guess query what it's actually achieved or will achieve. Um, unfortunately, I think that some of the changes that have been introduced will probably have the opposite impact on access to justice um, and the costs of using the, the justice system. Yeah, well, I think that's a great summary. Um, certainly, as I said before, you know, diverse industry that's forever changing. There's no doubt about that. Lisa, did you have any comments you wanted to make about changes that you've seen just focusing on the insolvency industry in recent times? Listen, I think whilst there's been a lot of changes in the insolvency industry generally over recent years, a lot of these changes haven't actually impacted the way that legal finance is used or the demand for legal finance. But having said that, there have been a few changes which affect the way that we as funders analyse the defences available in potential cases. So provisions like safe harbour provisions and the temporary moratorium on insolvency that was introduced in March 2020 as a result of COVID. 
But probably the most significant change over recent years is the amendment to the Corps Act last year, which led to a lot of corresponding uncertainty as to whether funding arrangements for an insolvency claim are actually required to comply with the Managed Investment Scheme protocols. This is really important in the context where it's quite common for the company and each of the liquidators to be named as plaintiffs in the proceedings, which essentially makes it a multi-party proceeding and arguably falls under the managed investment scheme protocols, even though this wasn't the intention of the regulations. And if these multi-party proceedings in insolvency are incorporated into the MIS provisions, it obviously adds to the time and significantly to the cost of the proceedings. So this is something a, a watch and wait at the moment to see how that is resolved. And the Association of Litigation Funders has been making some submissions in that regard to try and get this issue resolved as quickly as possible. Um, so it is a bit of a watch this space. I'm um, just moving now into, um, I wanted to have a little bit of a discussion about the process of applying for funding. What I just wanted to ask was how does a plaintiff or a lawyer know if they have a case that's suitable for legal finance? What are the sorts of high-level things that a plaintiff or lawyer should think about when they're considering whether to access legal finance? So generally there's four or five factors that we look at in analysing whether a case is suitable for funding. The first one is the merits of the claim. So really what are the prospects that the claim is going to be successful? Generally we don't like to look at matters where the prospects are fair or reasonable or just above average. We're looking for claims that are good or strong. We don't usually tie a percentage to it, but it's generally, we need the merits of the claim to be reasonably strong before we can proceed to fund it. Quantum, we need to be able to assess that the quantum is something that's easily calculated, that there is a definitive amount. It, it doesn't have to be something that you know straight off what the quantum is, but something that with some expert advice or with some calculations that it is easily ascertainable. And then the third category is costs. Really, we need to make sure that the costs of funding the proceedings right through to the end of a contested hearing is in proportion to the likely quantum that you're going to recover at the end of the day if you're successful or if the matter settles. Uh, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, we like to see that the costs of the claim aren't going to exceed about 10% of the likely quantum of the claim just to make sure that then at the end of the day, if the matter is successful, that by the time you pay the legal fees and the funders commission, that the vast majority of the um, resolution sum goes back to the plaintiff. The other factor is recoverability, which is often overlooked by a lot of firms and plaintiffs, but it's critically important and sometimes one of the first things that we look at there's no point winning a claim if at the end of the day the defendant doesn't have the assets to you know, satisfy the judgment sum. So that's something that we look pretty closely at and sometimes it's the first thing that we look at. Um, and then there's always other random factors, so things like the actual nature of the defendant, whether they're particularly combative um, and whether they're going to you know, increase the, um, the likely cost of the claim significantly because of their particular nature. We look at the resources of the plaintiff law firm, look at any pre-proceeding discussions that have taken place. And reputational issues is another big thing about whether it's the plaintiff or the defendant, any reputational issues that might arise. And one critical thing too is the attitude of the plaintiff. So if we have a plaintiff who says, I don't really 
care what it's worth, I just want my day in court, then that's something that we are going to be pretty reluctant to fund because we really want to see that the plaintiff is going to approach this matter on a commercial basis the same as what as what we are so that all of our interests are aligned. Kim, do you have anything else that you'd add to that? Look, I think that's a pretty good summary, Lisa. I probably, I agree with you that it, you're not just looking at the legal aspects of the claim, you're looking at the commercial dynamics um, of the parties and there are so many factors that go into success or otherwise of a claim which might, you know, could include things like the nature of the parties, why they got into the dispute in the first place, whether it's an all or nothing scenario, even political factors in some cases are important. And I think that 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 is why the industry is relatively small. It's a very specialised industry and to do well at it, you really need to be able to understand all of these factors. I suppose just one other thing I might add is that the risks that a fund takes on when it agrees to fund a claim, are, it's not just that it might not get a return on its investment. Um, often it will need to put up security for costs. So, and, and more often than not, that is the case. So we need to factor that in. Um, we also need to factor in that the litigation might go on for a lot longer than we initially anticipate. The budget that we set might be depleted and we might have to really actively manage that to mitigate that risk. Prospects, of course, can diminish um, and you might get some evidence in which you didn't have at the beginning that means that the claim size reduces or there's an impact on recoverability, which can happen sometimes. So all of these risk factors are taken into account at the beginning as well. Yeah, that, that's an absolutely fantastic summary. It is um, a difficult job and, as you've pointed out, there are a large number of issues that need to be considered as part of the process. Just moving into the application phase when funding is confirmed and what happens when the matter concludes, just want to run through that relatively briefly and if you could just give us, in terms of the application process, a couple of comments on what does a plaintiff or a lawyer need to give a funder to properly brief them in relation to a matter? One question that I often get asked is, do we need a written opinion from a QC before we come to a funder? And just some comments around what the funder's due diligence looks like. First of all, in relation to the application process, I do get a fair amount of people saying, how do I actually apply? And my response generally is pick up the phone, talk to us, and we'll talk you through what information you need to provide us. We may even be able to provide you on the spot an idea of whether it's the type of claim that we could fund. Um, but essentially, once it comes time to providing material for us to review, we're looking to hit those same criteria as what we briefly discussed previously. So the merits, we'd like to see a summary of the claim, a copy of the pleadings if there are any, any expert advice might have um, any supporting evidence that you have, as well as if you have an advice from counsel, it would be great to see it. Now, at Castle, we don't say you have to have a counsel advice or you have to have an advice from senior counsel. It is always helpful and it may speed up the diligence process if you have it. But at the end of the day, if you don't have an advice, um, that doesn't mean we're not going to fund the claim because we usually assess the merits of the claim in any case um, internally. The second criteria is quantum. So like mentioned before, we want to be able to see 
that the quantum is easily able to be calculated. So any information you can give us that supports your estimated quantum of the claim or any preliminary expert advice that you might have on that issue. Um, in relation to the costs criteria, we'd like to see an estimate from your lawyers which estimates the amount of costs that are likely to be incurred up to the conclusion of a contested trial. Now, I note that a lot of matters don't go all the way through to contested trial, but we need to make provision for the worst case scenario. Also, an idea as to what an estimate of security of costs might be, assuming that given that this is usually provided in the funding agreement, and recoverability. So either if you can provide us with a copy of the insurance policy, that's often difficult these days due to confidentiality, but if you can give us some kind of idea whether a such policy exists and what the caps might be on that policy or any financial accounts of the dependent, um, obviously easy to get if they're a, a public company, but, you know, pretty much whatever you can get to us to, to enable us to review the matter and satisfy ourselves that the um, all of those criteria have been met. Um, and then once we have all of that information, we basically review those four to five criteria and check that there's sufficient supporting information to know that those criteria have been met. We read the supporting cases, we ask a bunch of questions, and when you respond to that, we'll probably ask you more questions. Um, and then when we're satisfied that that criteria has all been met, then we can present it to our investment committee with a recommendation for funding. And one thing I'd just add to that as well, Lisa, is that I always say to people when they're asking me what documents for briefing is, give me more um, rather than less, that backwards and forwards, we need more documents or, you know, you read one document and it leads to another is not the right way to do it. We'll, if you give us more documents, we'll work out which ones we really do need to look at and which ones we don't. So my recommendation would be give us as much as you have Kim, could you talk a little bit about some of the commercial matters and minimum threshold commercial returns that are needed and what sorts of documents are executed once funding is confirmed? Sure, Pip. Uh, the commercial matters, uh, look, in terms of the commercial metrics, I think most vendors will operate to roughly a 1 to 10 ratio. That means that if um, a claim is worth $10 million, then the amount of funding that can be provided is approximately $1 million, um, a tenth of, of that claim quantum. And we really do look at the realistic assessment of the claim size. There might be some blue sky components to the quantum, and although we'll take them into account, they are not, strictly speaking, always part of the 1 to 10 calculation because we recognise that they're harder to, to achieve. So in terms of claim threshold, um, different funders have different claim thresholds. Normally to for a claim to be commercially viable, it does need to be of a minimum claim size of the, you know, upwards of say a couple of million dollars. Some funders won't look at claims that are below five or 10 or even higher millions of dollars, but that is that is roughly where it sits. In, in relation to the documents that need to be signed, look for non-class action matters. It's pretty simple. It's it's really a funding agreement. Um, typically that has a, another agreement contained within it that relates to the law firm. Um, and the, the funded party also has to enter into their own agreement, separate agreement with the lawyers because they have their own separate relationship with the lawyers. In a 
funded class action now and they all need to be run as managed investment schemes. There are many, many more documents which need to be prepared and vetted by a number of parties. So that's not just the funding agreement, but you also have a, a product disclosure statement, um, a constitution, a compliance plan. There's, there's a whole bunch of documents which need to be prepared. So um, look, the lead applicant in a class action tends to review those documents or some of them and then they sign the funding agreement at the end and they get their own legal advice on so now it's it's a much more lengthy process i guess of formalizing the funding arrangement so um, at that stage funding is confirmed when you sign up to the funding agreement could you talk a little bit about the sorts of roles of the funder, the plaintiff and the lawyers in running the claim? And just touching briefly on uh, there are a lot of questions that are asked around the plaintiff or the claimant losing control of the claim and any reputational issues that might flow from that. So just a little bit of an outline of the different roles of the different participants. PIP essentially funded matters and the role of lawyers and the plaintiff in funded matters is very similar to a non-funded matter. So the lawyers do what they do best. They conduct the legal proceedings. The plaintiff provides the instructions to the lawyers to enable them to conduct those proceedings. Really, the role of the funder is a few different things. So providing guidance in relation to which counsel or experts to engage now, that's not to say that we say you must use this counsel or you must use that expert, but if the lawyer comes to us and says, listen, you've had experience in these particular matters before, is there anyone that you could recommend? Often we can. We review marketing strategy in class actions to provide some kind of assistance. We provide assistance in legal strategy. We attend meetings with counsel, experts, court attendances, and we assist in settlement negotiations and mediations. So at the end of the day, the funder is just part of the team. But you'll notice how I've used words as in the funder provides guidance, assistance, review. And that is intentional because at the end of the day, no funder should be controlling the proceedings. The control really should be in the hands of the plaintiff because it's their proceedings. So essentially, there should not be any control by the funder. And there are a few things in place to prevent the funder having control of the proceedings. Um, one of them being is in, in most, if not all, funding agreements, certainly the funding agreements at Castle, there is a dispute resolution clause which says that if there is a disagreement between any of the parties, whether it be the plaintiff, the lawyers or the funder, and it's something that can't be resolved easily between the parties, then that matter will go to the most senior counsel engaged on the file and all parties will um, follow the advice from counsel as to which path ought to be taken. Um, secondly, there is provisions that litigation funders need to comply with conflict of interest policy, which basically says at the end of the day, the plaintiff's interests prevail. So is there, if there is a conflict of interest that can't be remedied by discussion, um, then at the end of the day, the, the plaintiff has the ultimate control. So for those reasons, there should not and will not really be any control by the funder. So who in that team chooses the barristers and the experts and the lawyers for the claim? So Pip, usually the choice of legal team it's, is a joint decision that's made by the lawyers and the funder with input from the, from the client if they wish to have it. Uh, often cases will come with a legal team attached to it. 
And um, as the funder, if if you know the team or the people and you're comfortable with them, um, on most occasions the matter will go through with that legal team conducting it. If it doesn't come with a legal team, then we'll often consult with the lawyers to decide on who the counsel should be. Sorry, by legal team, I meant counsel. So um, that will that will usually be a joint decision. It, it's generally not dictated by any one party. We also, the funder will also provide uh, security for costs if it's sought, and we typically provide an indemnity to the funded party so that if they lose the case, they don't have to, to bear that liability. So as Lisa said, the funder does fulfil a few roles, but it's really more the high level sort of input and strategy that we have involvement with and the lawyers are primarily responsible for running the proceedings. So just talking about the proceeding then um, and just coming to the conclusion of what happens when the matter does complete, if we can just quickly touch on the outcome if the claim is unsuccessful and the outcome if the claim is successful and, and in that situation how the proceeds might be distributed. Pip, if it's a, the claim is unsuccessful, it's a very quiet day in the office and a great cause for reflection, shall we say. <laughs> Um, first of all, we would explore whether there's any avenues for appeal. If not, we pretty much have to accept our fate. Um, the funder, you know, we won't recover any of the funding that we provided and often we'll also have to pay any adverse costs orders that have been made um, by the court. At the end of the day, the lawyers will have been paid for their services or the disbursements will have been paid and the plaintiff hasn't had to pay any money throughout the proceedings. So the funder is the one who takes the hit. Um, they take on all the risk and it's usually the only party out of pocket. But this is why our due diligence has to be so thorough. And, you know, it also justifies the commission that we charge if the claim is successful. I guess um, if the claim, on the other hand, is successful, um, we ring a bell. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. Look, I think it's really important to celebrate the wins um, in any in any job and it's always a relief when when the claim comes to the end of its journey sometimes we live with these claims for two or three years so we become invested in them not just financially but in other ways you know we want to see a good outcome for ourselves but we also want we want to see a good outcome for the clients Um, we are a business but at the same time we all have an interest in seeing these claims um, reach a successful conclusion um, and either have their day in court or resolve. So, um, look, it's always a it's a good day when we see that happen. Well, that's a good place to wrap up this discussion, I think. It has been a great treat to talk all things legal finance with you both today and you've given us a fantastic outline or summary of the process and what it looks like. I'm sure that there'll be future episodes where we'll talk in a little bit more detail on some of these. But for now, I wanted to just thank you both for your time today. Thanks, Thanks, Hi there, that's a wrap for the View from the Castle podcast for today. We hope you have picked up some useful tips and tricks and enjoyed listening to all things legal finance. If you want to continue the conversation, please reach out via email or via our website, castle.com.au. We would love to discuss what you are seeing in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.